I'm speaking on science and spiritual practices today. And we're in a very unusual situation at the moment, probably unprecedented. Although there's been a considerable decline in traditional religion, there's been a tremendous upsurge of interest in spiritual practices in the modern world. And there's also been a whole lot of scientific studies of the effects of these practices. What these studies uh, show, basically, is that religious and spiritual practices make people happier, healthier, and live longer. I believe it's really essential to keep science rigorous, meaning that we do good science, but you have to understand what people are really feeling and thinking about. Because if, if we don't understand the subjective qualities of these experiences, then whatever we can say is going on in the brain or in the body, it, it doesn't really have any meaning unless you can connect the two. Who are we? What shapes us? And what are the things that may limit our experience of life? So this notion that I, I didn't really have a name for it, but I think indigenous teachings have taught it for thousands of years and contemplative practice have taught it that the idea of a separate self, something I call the solo self that's only in your body is actually an illusion when that we're really part of much larger circles of belonging. I was trained as a scientist in the Western tradition, a modern kind of linear perspective on things. So there's a broader view that can identify that separate solo self as actually a construction of the mind. And then you see, okay, well then, what is it that I can do to understand from a scientific point of view what indigenous and contemplative wisdom traditions have been saying for all these really millennia, for thousands of years? What are the neural mechanisms in the brain that keep on reinforcing in our neural architecture this idea of separation? So when we talk about, for example, enlightenment, we talked about the differentiation between the big E enlightenment experiences and the little E enlightenment experiences. And the little E experiences are basically defined by the term itself, basically that it is shedding some light on our ignorance of a particular part of our lives, a particular question, a particular issue. Uh, it brings us out of the darkness. And part of why I think these experiences are helpful for all of us is that we've all had them. Not all of us have, have struck the big Buddha type of enlightenment, but almost all of us have had these little aha moments in our lives. There are things where we're struggling with a problem at work or a problem with a relationship or what to do with our lives or something like that. But that is different than the bigger experiences, the big E experiences. In those kinds of really big transformational experiences, it's not just the solution to one problem, but it's like the solution to all problems. Our entire worldview is transformed. Our values, our morals, our sense of spirituality, our sense of self, everything is just rewritten in our own brains and in our spirit, our soul, whatever terms you want to ultimately use for that. And positive psychologists try to find out what makes people happy, as opposed to more traditional psychology, which is more about what makes people miserable. I mean, and that's probably because the people who go to see psychotherapists, psychoanalysts, and so on, people have got problems. But the positive psychologists were trying to find out what makes people happy. When they were studying happy people to find out what characteristics happy people had, one of the things they found was that happy people tend to be people who are grateful. And grateful people who are happier people also are more popular. 
this was a widespread finding that they established. The most effective of their experiments involved what they called the gratitude letter. They asked people to write a letter to acknowledge and thank someone who'd helped them in their lives who they hadn't properly thanked or acknowledged before. It could be a teacher, family member, a friend. So they wrote this letter and then they went to that person and read it to them. And this had a huge effect. They were measurably happier for two months afterwards as a result of doing that. Something as simple and as brief as that had an enormous effect. It used to be traditional in most cultures for people to give thanks before meals by saying grace or singing grace. You can give thanks to the earth, you can give thanks to the sun that enables plants to grow and life to exist on earth. You can give thanks for being alive in the first place because none of us are alive as a result of our own choice, decision or effort. And if you believe that behind the universe there's a source of all things, a conscious source from which all things come, God or whatever you choose to call the ultimate source of conscious being, then you can give thanks to that too. Everyone has some reason to be thankful. That your identity is much broader than the body you're born into, the sense of self, sensation, perspective and agency, then you realize I can have the sensation not just of this body but of relationships I'm in, of the forest I'm walking in, of the whole of life on earth and the perspective of the whole of life, not just the body. And then the agency, how do you act on behalf of not just the body, right? The solo self, but actually for people you love, for people you don't know, but are part of your human family, for people, the larger family of life on earth. And then when I went around talking to people about this, they goes, of course, the self is the body. My self is here, here's myself. I go, well, actually, let's take a deep breath around that. Because if you're only acting on behalf of this, then we're doomed because then you can understand racism and social injustice, you can understand the polarization we have. As we all have an unconscious body-based nervous system, the autonomic nervous system, which has two sides, the parasympathetic and the sympathetic. When you're afraid of something, your sympathetic nervous system is activated, adrenaline goes through your bloodstream, your heart beats faster, your blood pressure goes up and you're in a state where you're ready to fight or run away, the fight or flight reaction. The opposite is the parasympathetic nervous system, which is about not being afraid. And it's only when that system is activated that you can carry out activities that require a relaxation of the body and lack of fear, making love, for example, eating a meal. You can't do these things if you're hyperactivated with the adrenaline system. If you're being chased across a field by an angry bull, your parasympathetic nervous system is fully activated, and good thing it is, it helps you run faster. Now, it's very necessary for us to have that response. But in the modern world, a lot of people spend their time in a state of chronic anxiety. They're afraid almost all the time. They're worried about things or they're fearful of things that might go wrong or anxious. And this activates the chronic activation of the sympathetic nervous system, which is very bad for health. One of the effects of meditation is feeling more relaxed, being able to sleep better, and being able to be more effective in your life. And that's why many people do it. But the reason people meditated traditionally was not so they could be more successful in love and business or sleep better or it, not, it wasn't these secular worldly benefits that pe we people were primarily meditating for. 
They were meditating because they thought it provided a way of uh, connecting with the ultimate source of consciousness. And the ultimate source is conscious. That's the whole point. The ultimate being is a conscious being. And the idea is that the ultimate mind of the universe is complete, not going anywhere, not trying to go anywhere else. And it's utterly blissful. It's in a permanent state of bliss. So when we look at the experiences themselves, we realized that we needed to get a little bit more of a handle of what these experiences were really like. And not just, I, I felt one with God, but what were the emotions? What were the thoughts? What were the feelings? What were the experiences like? So we ran an online survey where we asked people to describe their most intense spiritual experiences. And we received uh, about 2,000 responses to all of this over a period of about five or six years. Uh, and we got narrative descriptions of these experiences. What was fascinating about this ultimately was that when we could start to figure out that there were certain universal elements to these experiences, there was such an incredible diversity of them as well. No two were alike. And I think that's really important for us to understand. Hindus see all conscious beings, as it were, fractal reflections of the divine mind. One of their principal metaphors is of buckets of water, lots of buckets of water, just standing there and at night reflecting the moon. And in each bucket you see a reflection of the moon. It looks like hundreds or thousands of different moons. But each of those is a reflection of the one moon, which is the source of all these reflections. And in the same way, all our minds are reflections of the ultimate mind and participate in its nature because they're derived from it. So our conscious being is part of the ultimate conscious being. Now, you don't have to believe all this or even take it seriously to meditate. And all of us have the choice, really, what to believe. Do we trust our own direct experience? Or do we trust a theory, the materialist theory, that says the mind is nothing but the activity of the brain, therefore it's all inside the head? Uh, a theory which is notoriously poor on understanding consciousness, the very existence of consciousness is the hard problem for the materialist theory. Depression, anxiety, addiction, and suicide are just growing enormously in the United States at least. If the mind constructs the self, which I believe it does, we can use the mind to actually turn this around. And we still have a short window of time, a very small window, short span of time when we can do this, where we make a bridge between spirituality, if you will, and science, where we reach to ancient practices, contemplative and indigenous teachings, which teach basically here's how to have a life of meaning beyond just survival and how to have connection beyond just your own body or bodies like it. When I talk to people in various spiritual settings and I say, well, what does it mean to be spiritual? They'll say it's you know, connection beyond just your individuality or people like you, and it's about meaning beyond just surviving, then I go, okay, well then, really this solo self and busting through it is a spiritual journey with spiritual paths that say, I'm looking for something much more than just my individuality. Something feels meaningless about only being for the individual. And I think that meaninglessness that is missing is because modern culture has told you that the self is only in your body. And it's just not true. What we're talking about is, is that these are the most intense experiences that anyone has ever had. 
for the individual. They describe it in such a way, it's, it's the most powerful feeling, the most powerful sense of love, the most powerful uh, light, uh, whatever it is. And one of my favorite examples uh, was a 43-year-old male who said, I, as an unnameable but individual being, was traveling down an infinite roller coaster like waves of pure white ecstatic light. The ecstasy was overwhelming and rose and fell in intensity with the waves of light. The light path seemed infinitely long in both directions. The sense of the being and the light was infinitely more real than anything I had ever experienced. Do we trust our own direct experience or do we trust a theory? But partly as a result of my own experiences, I came to the conclusion that was too narrow a view and it was better to trust my own direct experience of consciousness. And this is again a point where science and spiritual practices come into a fairly close connection because science, after all, is based on the experimental method. The experiments are about experience and spiritual experience is about experience too. Science is ultimately based on experience and in French the same word, experience, means experiment and experience. So when we're exploring consciousness, is it better to explore it externally through studying the brain or internally through the actual experience of consciousness itself? If you're really a scientist, you know that much of what's real is not visible to the eye. When you sit, let's say, and just quietly are in a forest and you just let yourself be aware of what arises in your direct, subjectively felt experience, then soon the sense of separation begins to dissolve away. And if you allow yourself that silence and what seems like being alone, you realize actually it's not alone, it's all one. And this is where the word intra-connected came from. There is no word in English called intra-connected. And I thought that's so strange. If we don't have a word for it, we probably don't even have a way of talking about it with each other or even living into it. There's nothing wrong with narrative. I mean, stories are really important, but if the story is wrong, if it's limiting, it'll become a prison. But if it's liberating, it becomes a playground. For the person, they get it. They just suddenly get the world for the first time ever. They understand the way the world works. They understand what their path is in life, what they're supposed to do, what they're supposed to be, how they're supposed to act. They understand if there's a God, if there isn't a God, whatever they've understood, they now get it. And it is a sense of clarity. And that that is very much what enlightenment itself means. So here is an interesting description of this from a 37-year-old female scientist, as she described herself. And she said this about her experience. She said, everything in life seemed to click. I had this clarity and it was as if I was looking at life from the inside out. Despite my trepidation, this experience seemed to satisfy my proof-oriented mentality with the concept of intuition. It was almost as if my intuition from somewhere deeper had offered some sort of direct experience that offered a proof. So, Again, now we can talk about, well, where in the brain might a sense of clarity come about? So a very central group of structures called the thalami or the thalamus, and there's a left and a right thalamus. So what does it do? Well, because it's so central, it helps many different parts of the brain to connect and communicate with each other. It also brings a lot of our sensory information, particularly from our uh, eyes and ears, uh, up into the brain. So in many ways, 
The thalamus is essential for helping us to establish our sense of reality. And some people have even argued that the thalamus is the seat of consciousness because the thalamus in particular shuts down when we're under anesthesia, for example. All societies have rites of passage. And the most fundamental rites of passage are concerned with birth and death, which are the ultimate passages. One, you become alive, and the other, you stop being alive. Many rites of passage involve a theme of death and rebirth, that you die to your old role, and you're born again in a new way. And I think that some of them actually involve near-death experiences. Basically what happens to people when they have these experiences is that they find themselves floating out of the body, usually looking down on their body with nurses and doctors doing things to them. Then they often go through a tunnel, a dark tunnel, and emerge into a realm of bliss, light, and joy. And when they're in that realm, they feel immensely welcomed, loved. They sometimes meet people, deceased relatives or friends who welcome them. They feel utterly blissful, joyful, loved, and are having a wonderful time being there. Very often when people have had these experiences, they say it's completely changed their life. They've lost the fear of death. They often become more spiritual people. And members of their family often notice their behavior has changed. So these have a very transformative effect, even though the whole experience may only last a few minutes. It changes people's lives. I think if this were like 25 years ago, I wouldn't even believe I could talk like what I'm about to say. So I happened to be teaching years ago at a physics meeting with 150 physicists and me. I kept on asking them what is time and what is energy and all this stuff. And they said the most amazing thing. They said energy, is the movement from possibility to actuality. And I, I don't know what to make of that. How weird is that? From possibility to actuality? In quantum physics terms, possibility is represented um, as this kind of sea of potential, this quantum vacuum, this generator of diversity. It's basically called the formless source of all form. So it's empty of form, but it's full of possibility. So I went, oh my gosh, once you start making statements like that, like it looks like consciousness, the experience of being aware arises when energy flow is in this maximal uncertainty of the quantum vacuum. And then what, what was really interesting was once you could get out of this solo self plateau of what you've been told that you are, and you access this place and you start to live life rather than making things happen, you tap into that space and then things start arising in these kind of wild ways that have a feeling of synchronicity or you can't believe that happened and that happened and this all these things that maybe on the surface seem like coincidences, but it's almost like you're tapping into a, this larger reality. Well, when people have these experiences, and, and maybe many of you have had such an experience, what people frequently describe is they're not making it happen. Uh, it is an experience that is happening to you. So this feeling of surrender, which is particularly prominent in the Islamic tradition, but we see this in many different perspectives and from many different practices and individuals. So here is a very interesting description of a sense of surrender from a 48-year-old Catholic woman. She said this, she said, I surrendered everything, including my faith and my salvation, and only for one reason. I loved God so much that I would truly give up everything to be connected with him. I said yes, and in an instant, God returned everything to me transformed. 
From that day forward, a new relationship exists between God and me. It is ever-present, no distance, no separation. I am not attached to doctrine, dogmas, or rituals. I see God's action all around me. So this actually is an interesting kind of hybrid description of not only the sense of surrender, but that feeling of oneness. There's no distance, no separation between this person and God. But it was achieved through a sense of surrender. When you think about the brain and you think about how it works in general, it tends to work slowly over time. When we go to school to learn about, to become a mathematician or become a scientist or become a philosopher or whatever, it takes many, many years of reading and learning and studying and developing the brain. But these kinds of transformational experiences seem to happen in literally seconds for some people, minutes for others, but in a very, very short period of time, it changes everything about this person's life. How does that happen? The short answer is we don't know. Every one of us can find these kinds of experiences in one way or another. To me, the hopeful part is, is that based on the evidence that we have, and again, when you even just think about how our brains are wired and operate, uh, for the most part, we all have a frontal lobe, we all have a temporal lobe, we all have a limbic system, and they all more or less work the same way. So it makes sense that everyone should be able to have these kinds of experiences. So there's no conflict here between science and spiritual practice. In fact, I think that they mutually reinforce each other because the scientific studies illuminate these practices and also show us statistically what benefits they can have. So I think we're entering an era where science and spiritual practices can be seen as complementary rather than in any sense contradictory. There's a kind of ferment of spirituality going on at the moment and I think we're actually on the threshold of a new phase of spiritual evolution. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to hear the full version, you can do so with the Weekend University Premium Membership. This gets you access to our master library of over 230 talks and interviews with the world's leading psychologists, professors, and authors, as well as transcripts, CPD certification, quizzes, and unlimited access to the recordings from our annual conferences. For more information, please go to theweekenduniversity.com forward slash membership.